Amen. Welcome. We are in a series in the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to be in chapter 2 today. And um, we're so glad you're with us in the house and maybe in your house um, as, uh, as we continue this series. The book of Colossians is written uh, by, by Paul to a, a, a group of Christians in a city that was kind of on the outskirts. Um, it was a city that Paul had never visited. He didn't know these people um, personally. Um, he had heard reports about them from people that he did know, that he, that he had sent there to start this church. Um, and it, it appears that there were some outside influences on this church, some of them Gentiles and Gentile influences and maybe some mystery religions. Some of them, there was a, there was a movement of Jewish folks um, in the middle of the first century, and they spread out, and, 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 and they, were, they were Christian. They were followers of Christ, but they brought a lot of their Jewish heritage to, to things, and so there were a lot of questions about, about these sorts of things. And, and this letter to the church in, the, in this place of Colossae, is, it reflects a lot of those questions and Paul answering those questions. And so we've been trying to walk through some of those, some of those things, some of the things that, that we learn today from, from questions that, that are just as relevant now as they were 2,000 years ago. Um, and, and to set up today, one of the most poignant um, one of the most poignant movies that, that I've ever seen, and, and those who've seen it would, would agree, is the movie Schindler's List, right? Just a, a, an incredible look at, at this man who, tr- who transforms from just, just someone who is greedy and using a group of, of, of Jews in order to, to pr- move his business forward, who goes through this sort of transformation where he really cares about the people, that, and, and he winds up saving thousands of lives and generations from the Holocaust. Um, but but the thing that's so poignant about it is this this closing scene, and, and if you haven't seen it, it came out in 1994 in the U.S., so you've had lots of time. Um, but there's this this closing scene where he's standing with with what are known as the Schindler Jews, the the, the those that he had saved in his factory, and and he and and the, again there's there's this mass of people, and they wanted to do something for him, and so they harvested every bit of gold that they had and. And they fashioned it into a ring, given this ring. And, and he looks at it in and, and, and his expensive suit and, he, and his expensive car and all the things. And he breaks down with this question of, of why didn't I do more? Why didn't I do more? And he, he just starts to list off things. This car could have saved so many lives. This, this suit could have saved so many lives. He, he, holds, he has a, a, a Nazi pin that... that uh, uh, would sort of protect him, but he looks at it and he goes, this was a life. I, I, I traded this for a life. And he, he's just, he gets to the end of the story and he's racked with this question of, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And it's a very real and powerful question. And it's a question that, that we want to ask, but it's also a question that, that I think when we, when, we, when we take the question and frame it and couch it in certain categories, it, it it actually may be destructive for us. We can ask the question to a point that, that, that it, 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 the, the question itself loses its power to even change us, and it becomes nothing more than guilt. And we're going to talk about that this morning in Colossians chapter 2. But in order to, to set that up, we need to make sure we understand, because Paul didn't, didn't write this. That's when I go left. Um, <clears throat> Paul didn't write this in nice little chunks for us. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he didn't write this in these little chunks. He actually, um, he, it was all written as one letter. And so what he's about to say that we're going to read in chapter 2 comes 
after sections where he talks about this sort of structure of, of knowing Christ and doing what Christ has called us to do and being the, the, the right kind of person. He talks about how Christ is preeminent or first among all things. He talks about maturity. Last week, we talked about maturity that comes through suffering, that suffering is a tool that God uses in our lives in order to make us more and more like Christ. And that's where we find ourselves in the argument today. He's, he set this up. And now we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, I'll put it up for you. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and he says this. He says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So he's got a a, a see to it then, or a see then. See to this. See to it that no one takes you captive. Now, here's an interesting thing. He says, just as you receive Christ, okay? He's going to give us a just as. Just as you receive Christ, continue to live in him. So he's he's setting up his argument. He's setting up his argument, and and he's, he's saying... There's a way, there's a, there's a path that we were on when we received Christ, and that path is the same path that we're on now. So, so if we ask the question, how did we receive Christ? What's true about receiving Christ? And, and the answers are, are fairly simple. We received Christ freely. We received him without condition. We received him based on no merit of our own. We received him as a gift. And don't, don't just pass over this. What Paul is saying is nothing has changed between the moment you first received Christ and this very moment. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Continue to live in that gift. Continue to live in that freely unearned way. You see, we have a tendency... Our tendency, at least my tendency, and I think I share it with others, is, is to sort of have two salvations in our life. We have sort of two salvations. We have our first salvation, which we, we agree with all of those things that we just read. I've received Christ freely. His gift is mine. And, and what that means is I get heaven. I get, I get the ultimate eternal gift because of that. But then we also sort of bring in what I'll call a second salvation, a salvation that doesn't continue to live in that way, it sort of writes a different salvation. And it's a salvation where we think that the rest of the Christian life is somehow based on our merits. It's based on our ability to follow certain rules or to, to live out certain things in the church or in, in life. And, and it's, we've got this, this, these two salvations, one, one where we're thankful for the gift of God and another where we think we have to work in order to get God's favor now. So I'm happy to be in the family, but, but the dad in this family is sort of, now his approval of me is dependent upon my performance. So I get in the front door based on his gift, but now I have to perform in order to keep his favor. And Paul's arguing and he's saying, <clears throat> he's saying that's not the case. That's not the way this is. Just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. Free, un- unmerited, unearned. 
It's, it's this idea of, and, and, and I think we get hung up on this especially. <clears throat> we get hung up on this especially because everything in, in our lives is somewhat transactional, right? Like we, we sort of believe you, you, in many ways, you get what you deserve. You put in a day's work, you should get a day's pay. You, you rise to the top, you should get the recognition of being on top. We, we have this way of, of looking at it, and, and the problem with that <clears throat> is that it's devoid of grace. That, that grace, doesn't <clears throat> grace doesn't enter in to that equation now. So we've said, I've, I, I've had God's grace. We almost past tense it. I had God's grace that made me a member of the family. But now, God's grace has nothing to do with my daily life. It has nothing to do with the way I live. It has nothing to do with my relationships and my family and my work and my church life, it's, it's gone now. Now it's based on merit or performance. And in this, in verse 8 there, see what Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by these empty philosophies. See to it that no one, no one adds in something to your salvation. And in chapter 2, he's actually at this point at, at, at verse 6, six 7, 8, Paul is transitioning his argument, and he's going to do some things big picture in, in the book of Colossians. And what we're going to see here is the first of three warnings, okay? He says, beware of these things, and, and, and we're only going to look at the first one today. But there's these three things he says to beware of. He says, beware of those who would take you captive. That's where we are. <clears throat> I'm sorry, it says verse 6. It's actually verse 8, okay? But beware of those who would take you captive. And then he says, beware of those in verse 16. This is next week's section, actually. Beware of those who would judge you. Okay? It's very fascinating. Instead of, instead of don't judge, he says, beware of being judged. Okay? And then he says, beware of those who would disqualify you or condemn you. He's going to talk through these things. He's saying to the people of God that there's danger in the, in the world. Once, once we've come to Christ, there is danger in the world, and he wants us to beware of it. He, he puts all of these in the place of, of people or, or, or those who would do certain things. So beware of these things. So let's keep reading. We're going to pick back up in verse 8, and, and, and keep, but keep turning the page. Verse 8, Colossians 2. He says, see to it, or beware of, <clears throat> see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Paul is, Paul is, is he's, he's laying down significant theological truths for us here. Truths that have come to define what it means to, to believe Christian doctrine, to believe Orthodox Christianity, to, to really be a follower of Christ. Notice what he says. He, and it's interesting because he doesn't explicitly state what he's arguing against. We know that there's some sort of outside influence prompting him to say this, but he doesn't necessarily tell us exactly what that is. He just sort of goes into these ideas. And and notice the first one there in verse 9, where he says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This this is a million dollar, if if we want to quantify it, and that's not enough, billion, trillion, right, dollar idea. You see, what he's saying about Jesus is this, and he said it before in in the book of Colossians, but he's saying that everything that is God is fully contained in the person of Jesus, who was a man, a human. He lived in a body, just like you and I, so much like us, and yet so different. Do you catch that? This is Jesus. 
This is who we're talking about. It's, it, it's important enough to Paul that he repeats it throughout this letter. We've, we have to come to terms with this reality that Jesus is something, something like us, but something different at the very same time. He has all of the same humanity that we have, minus the sin. He was, he was, it, he was wholly unique as a man. So Jesus is all of God. He's all of man. And, and that idea, has, it's, it is divisive to this day. That idea and, and trying to understand it or not being willing to accept it has even led to all kinds of false ideas. Okay? Like many, many of the, the branches of, out of Christianity that we would say they cease to be Christian. Churches where they will say, well, he's all God, or he, but he's not wasn't really a man, or vice versa. He was, he was really a man, and he had aspects of being God or trying to put it together. Sometimes he was acting as God, and sometimes he was acting as a man. But that's not the argument that Paul makes. And if it's important enough here for Paul to lay it in front of us again, to make sure that we are, are grasping this, everything it meant to be God was true in the person of Jesus. That's our Savior. Everything it meant to be God was true in the person of Jesus. And I want you to look at the very last phrase of, of verse 10 there, too. Paul restates something he said before. He said, he's the head over every power and authority. He returns to this idea from earlier in Colossians. He said it before. And, and boy, do we need a reminder of that, right? I don't know about you, but I've been preoccupied this week with power and authority. Who has it? How did they get it? What does it mean for them? But get this right. Jesus is as much Lord over all powers and authorities today as he was a week ago, as he was five years ago, 50 years ago. Jesus is the head over all power and authority, and nothing changes that. Nothing changes it. But there's another idea there that I skipped over that I actually want to camp on for a minute here. You see the the, the uh, first part of verse 10, it says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. I think this is a powerful truth. This is a powerful truth for us. You see, Jesus is all of God in a man, and he's brought us into fullness. Now, it's not fullness, in, we're, not, we're not like him in the sense that we are God, but, but he's brought us to fullness um, meaning we're, we're lacking nothing because of him. There's nothing that, everything that we need is there. Remember we started, have I done enough? Is there, is, there a, is there something more that I'm missing? And Paul says here, he says, he says, listen, the absolute truth is this. Our Savior, who was all of God in a man, has seen fit to share with you so that you lack nothing. Do you believe that today? Everything that you need, is already available to you. Nothing is lacking. Nothing's been withheld. There's nothing else that I need to do in order to get more from God. Whoa. That's not the way I live. I tend to focus on what I don't have. I tend to focus on getting, getting the things I, I'm missing that somehow what I don't have is what really matters in my life. 
But the argument that's made here is that because of who Christ is, he's seen fit to make, give us everything that we need. We have the fullness of God. We're lacking nothing. Look at what the way Paul writes it to the church in Ephesus. He says, God placed all things. This is the, almost the exact same argument, just in different words. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Christ is in charge. And look at verse 23. The church, which is his body, the fullness. The church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Do you catch, Do you catch this? The church, we are the fullness of God. We were the plan from the beginning for, for the fullness of everything that God is to penetrate the world. We're lacking nothing. He's given us everything that we need. Nothing's missing. We share in his fullness. What a powerful idea. What a powerful idea. Keep reading in, in Colossians 2. Verse 11 says this. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, this gets, this gets a little deeper into the waters, okay? And he, he takes this imagery of circumcision, and he puts the imagery of circumcision or, or the removal of, of the, the, the flesh that identified the Jews as followers of God, okay? It was an outward symbol of, of, of what God was doing with his people. And he likens it to the act of baptism. And he said, just as, he's saying, just as the Jewish symbol of circumcision identified you with something, the Christian symbol of baptism does the same, okay? That you are, you are baptized into this, this thing with Christ. You've been buried with him, but you're also raised with him through the work of God. You see, um, and it, the, the, the symbol of, of circumcision was deeply embedded with the, with the people of Israel. It was, it was, it was a, their identifying marker. It was, it was something that, that they, they believed and, and and, and, and that they believe brought them into a right standing with God. And in order to be in a right standing with God, you had to do it, you had to have it, it had to be part of, part of your identity. Okay? And so this is why throughout, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the symbol of circumcision is a critical one. It's a critical one. But there was something more to it all along. Because you see what it says there, that, 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 our, that the, there's, there's still a, a circumcision that goes on in our lives, but it's not a circumcision of the flesh. It's not the outward sign that matters. It's a circumcision of the heart. That the thing that identifies us is not an external, it's an internal. It's not, an, it's not, a, it's not to, to make it baptism. It's not getting wet in the water of baptism that makes you right. It's the hand of Christ that does it. It's Christ that makes us clean. It's Christ that identifies us. And it's always, lest we get confused, it wasn't once about the circumcision, about the act, and now it's not. In the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, just quickly, this is what the Lord says. This is, this is, um, this is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I don't know why it says Deuteronomy 6. Several errors today. Please forgive me. I need your grace as well as God's, Okay. And the Lord your God will circumcise, this is, if you want to write this down, that's Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You see, the issue wasn't that you lived because of the external sign. The issue was that the Lord penetrated and changed hearts. That's the symbol. That's what matters. And you see, what we take from this today is that Jesus has done all that needs done for us to be right. It's not just that we share in his fullness. There's nothing left to be done. The work of changing hearts has happened. The work the work that was necessary in order for you and I to have a heart that can connect with God, that work is finished. It's complete. It's been done. As we, we came to Christ, he did all that needed to be corrected in us. And remember what we said about earlier about two salvations. It's really easy for us to believe that, that Jesus accepted me as I am but now he's requiring me to get my act together in order to please him or to be effective for him, in order to, to be able to enter in with him, to come closer to him, to draw near him. We live as if, as if Jesus gets us into heaven, but now it's up to you and I to get the work done. Right? We're, 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 it's as if... It's as if Jesus' work is is good enough, but he needs me to continue to do it in order to complete it. Have you seen the, the, there's an ad campaign right now about um, don't turn into your parents. I think it's an insurance company. Have you seen those? They're pretty funny. Um, But but the one that stands out to me vividly in some ways too is, because I do this, there's a plumber in the house. Have you seen this one? He's under the sink. And then the, 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 the don't become your parent coach guy comes along because the, the guy standing there over him, like, are you using whatever wrench and this, that, and the other? And the, the parenting guy comes in and goes, he, you know, he's the expert. Do you need, does he need your help? Like, you know, I do that all the time. The, the guy comes to work on my HVAC, and I stand there, and I'm like, so is that the, you know, the semester valve there? What's going on? Um, I have no idea what I'm talking about, right? It's the same. He's the expert. It's the same way with Jesus, except in an infinite scale, right? Jesus has done the work. What could I possibly add to it? Just, just as if I tried to tell the plumber how to, how to do the, the, the work in my house, I would screw it up royally. It's the same way with Christ, right? He's done it. He's done it. His work is finished. Keep reading. He's done all that we need to be made right. Keep reading in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 now. It says, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, or just he canceled the the written law, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Do you catch this? We were dead in our sins, and we've moved to life. What more can we add to that? What can be added to it? We were dead, and now we're alive. He's made us alive. There was a legal charge standing against us. There was a code of holiness that we couldn't meet then, and we can't meet it now. We, we, We cannot add to what Christ has done. He's given us the full blessing of his death, burial, resurrection. The God who became flesh, he's done the work for us. He's given it to us. We can't add anything to his work. 
We can join him in it. We can't add to it. You know what infinity, if, if his work is infinite, do you know what infinity plus one is? It's just infinity still. We can do nothing to add to it. But yet it's so tempting for us to do the Jesus plus thing. Last week we kind of talked about wanting to live a life of Jesus plus, like I want to have an easy life plus Jesus. This week we're talking about Jesus plus from a different angle. We live like what needs to happen is, oh, I'm going to accept Jesus, but then from there I'm, I'm going to add to it plus my work. Okay? That this, is, this is salvation. This is what it means to be right with God, that, that I've, I've, I've been able to enter into the house, but I'm not at the, at the table of the feast with, with God yet until I prove myself. We treat the work of Jesus like it's all past tense, but it's present. It's present. Our standing with God cannot be enhanced by our our activity, by our following the rules, by our the record, our record of giving. We can't add to it. It's complete. For the Jews, they had a, a written code of law. We tend to have a more unspoken list, but there's this question: what are we doing because we believe, or you believe that it would add to the work of Christ? What is it that we do? And we do it because we believe it's going to add to the work of Christ. Add, the word add there could have multiple meanings. It, it, it could mean that, that if Jesus is really good on his own, if, if he has me, me alongside him or with him, how much better does Jesus even get? Because I've got a lot to offer, right? Jesus plus a whole lot of me is a, whole lot of great. And we sort of, it's, it's possible that we want to add for that reason. It's also possible that, that we believe, as we've been hitting on here, that, that I believe that I, I need to add to the work. I'm doing something because I'm still working for God's approval. Again, I'm, I get to be a part of the family. I get to be a part of the family, but, but somehow our, our Heavenly Father is, is capricious in his approval of us. And he's still waiting for us to, to get the right answer or to, to do the right thing, to perform in a way that, that, that puts a smile on his face. I, there's, there could be any number of things. What are, we, are, are we attending because we think somehow it, it adds to our standing? Serving, giving going on trips, mission trips, reading the right things, sharing with others, leading a ministry, teaching? Are we doing them because we believe in one way or another that in doing those things, somehow my, I'm going to add to what Christ has already done? It's tempting. It's tempting. I believe, I just do, it's, it's wrong, but I believe it, that, that, that Jesus needs me. And I can't let him down. And yet Paul's arguing here with us. 
And it's just as relevant today as it was in the first century. That all of my activity doesn't alter what Christ has done. Christ's work is done. Christ's life has been given to me. I can't make it better than it already is. I can't even sully it. It's done for me. I have adequately everything, everything that I need. And so what do we do, (laughs) right? Thanks, Paul, for pointing this out. And I'll tell you this, the answer isn't to stop doing the things. That's not the answer. You know, there's certain times, I'll be honest, we stand up here and we want to give you something like a lever to pull. We just want to, or a button to push, or we want to give you something tangible that you can just, a checklist. If you can just sort of go out and check this off your list, then you'll have had a good week with God. Um, That's a temptation. The answer isn't, well, if, if it's tempting for us to think that those activities are going to add somehow to, to my, my favor with God or, or add to, to the goodness of God, it's tempting to say we should stop doing them. That's not the answer, okay? It, it really isn't um, because all throughout, the, we're doing those things in the first place because the scriptures prompt us to. They're part of life with Christ. The answer is to connect with Jesus. And here's the really tricky fine line. I, I don't know, I can't make this, I really can't make this much simpler um, because it's pretty complex. There's a really fine line because the, the, the ways of connecting with Jesus are so easily manipulated into being things that we believe can merit us favor with Jesus, okay? The, the things in life, the, the places where we can go and the things we can participate that provide us with connection with the Savior are the very same things that it's so easy for us to do in order to try and get from God, to, to try and enhance ourselves with God. It's, it's the, so the point, point here, the answer is not separate yourself from Christian community and stop attending community gatherings and stop attending church. That's not the answer. Here's the thing. You ready for this? Christ is found in the congregation of the believers. He's here. He's present. We connect with him through it. The question isn't whether or not we should do that thing. The question really is why. Why are we doing it? Have we stopped to think about it? Have we asked him why we're doing it? Have we, have we engaged in conversation, discussion with others to help check our motivation for it? The answer isn't, I, it's possible for me to give so that I, because I believe by giving I'm somehow going to make Jesus happy. The answer isn't stop giving, stop, stop sharing with what God's given me. He's clearly told me to do it. The question is, why am I doing it? And this is the problem with this. For, for me as a teacher, this is the problem with this and sharing with you is that I don't have just a three-step program to get you to the place where you can satisfactorily answer the question, I don't have that problem anymore. I, I, forgive me, I'm not that good a teacher. But this is, what we're talking about is something that's so deeply embedded in our assumptions. It's it's so core and central to who we are, our beliefs about who God is, what he's done, 
and how we live that out. That we, we simply have to give it attention. Okay? And here's the best I can offer you. Do you even care? Do we even care about the question of our motivation? Our mo- Listen, I wholeheartedly believe until I meet Christ face to face and his work is, is complete and my flesh is fully removed and it's just me with him. I fully believe that my motivations are gonna be a mixed bag, a mixed bag of garbage and glory, <laughs> okay? It's the war that goes on in our souls until we meet him. And so I'm always, gonna, I'm always gonna be wrestling with my motives. I'm always gonna be wrestling with what's energizing my decisions and why I do what I do. But the thing I can offer you today is this. Can, do you care about the question? Do we care about the issue? Let's just measure our, our give a darn on this. Do we just wanna go about our life without being troubled by it? Because I can tell us at that point, we probably have the wrong concepts then. Or do we want to say like, I've solved that, I've conquered that. It's in my past. Okay. Maybe you should be writing the book on that. Because the rest of us are really wrestling with this. What does it mean for us? To believe that enough has been done for us. That all we do is, all we have to do is receive, believe. It's not easy. It's not easy to to, to get to that level. There may be some change when we evaluate this. There may be some change in what we do. But the thing I think that we'll find astonishing is that we do the very same things we were doing before. Our activity probably changes very little. We still need to get up in the morning and go about our daily business, our daily work. We still need to care about our neighbors. We still, it's, it's fine to, to, to enjoy, to, to find pleasure in our world. There's nothing, prohibit, no prohibition in that. But we do have to think about why. So the go and do this week, the go and do this week is to think deeply and honestly about what drives us. Do I, what do I believe? Don't, I don't want to be captive to an empty and hollow philosophy or idea. One that says I can somehow add to the work of Christ. But it's an idea. And ideas have to be confronted with deep thought. And not just once we have to enter into that. And so that's what we have. We have time to think. And here we have community in which to process it. I encourage you again to do this, to do this. If you're not engaged in a group, this would be a great week to to barge in, okay? They want you there, I promise. Will you pray with me? Lord, we just, um, boy, I... I'm thankful for the work that you've done and I confess that I I just I deny that work by the way I live my life um, 
alternating between taking it for granted and and assuming that I've got to I've got to do more for you. I've got to I've got to work to make you happy. I've got to I've got to somehow abide by by these these rules or, or engage in these practices, or else you're going to be disappointed with me. God, help us help us in our unbelief. Help us in our our belief of ideas that are that are empty. That we're we're just captive to them. We're we're bound to them. Would you help us to see the light? Would you help us to to know you fully? Would you help us to um, to reject the the voices that speak to us that tell us no 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 you can earn this you can do this God help us to to hear them to reject them so that we can live in your grace we thank you for it we we need it and we pray all of this in Christ's name Amen.